0: X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news of democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, November 2nd. Tomorrow's the election, by the way. Too late to mail your ballot. Turn it in by hand. I want to start the week with gratitude. Gratitude to the 500 plus donors who showed up with X-Ray over the past two weeks during the fall fund drive. Gratitude to your support of The Local. Gratitude to try to help this organization professionalize, grow into the next phase. Gratitude for your patience and efforts as we try to grow. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for sharing. And thanks for making it through the most challenging year in modern history. X-Ray. Today, back in the day, November 2nd, 1983, the bill was signed to create Martin Luther King Jr. Day. The holiday was promoted by labor unions and contract negotiations. After King's death, U.S. Representative John Conyers, a Democrat from Michigan, and U.S. Senator Edward Brooke, Republican from Massachusetts, introduced a bill in Congress to make King's birthday a national holiday. The first bill came to a vote in 1979, but it fell five votes short. The vote count in 1979 had 213 Democrats voting yes, 33 voting no. 40 Republicans voting yes and 100 Republicans voting no. Two of the main arguments were that a paid holiday for federal employees would be too expensive. Another was that a holiday to honor a private citizen would be contrary to long-standing tradition. Another one was that we didn't have any days honoring black people. Oh, wait a minute. I bet they didn't say that out loud. If you're counting at home, by the way, that meant the Democratic Party had 276 Democrats in the House, Republicans had 158. And if you're doing math at home, you'll notice that I didn't count the 30 Democrats and the 18 Republicans who didn't vote in 1979. After the bill was turned down, originally the King Center turned to support from the corporate community and the general public to popularize the campaign. Stevie Wonder released the single Happy Birthday in 1980. Six million signatures were collected for a petition to Congress to pass the law. In 1983, 249 Democrats voted yes, 13 voted no, 89 Republicans voted yes, and 77 Republicans voted no. So even an 89 to 77 majority of the Republican Party voted in favor of Martin Luther King Day. President Ronald Reagan originally opposed the holiday, citing cost concerns, but on November 2nd, 1983, he signed the bill into law. It was proposed by Representative Katie Hall of Indiana. The holiday was observed for the first time on January 20, 1986. It is observed on the third Monday of January. And today, back in the day, November 2nd, 1982, voters approved Ballot Measure 51. That established the first public police review committee in Portland. The committee of nine citizen volunteers appointed by the city council and three city commissioners would review the results of all internal affairs cases in the bureau and make recommendations. One such case occurred in 1985 with Lloyd Stevenson, a black man, was killed by a policeman using a chokehold. Neither of the officers was disciplined. The case took a horrible turn when on the day of Stevenson's funeral, two police officers sold t-shirts to fellow officers bearing the slogan, don't choke them, smoke em. They were fired, but eventually reinstated with back pay. On the ballot this year is an independent police review committee with the ability to subpoena and impose discipline. Ballots are due tomorrow on Tuesday. Today, we'll have your Quick Six news headlines and an interview with Oregon Congressman Peter DeFazio.
1: X ray. First up, it's time for today's Quick Six local rundown. My name is Emily Gilliland. Nearly 1,000 demonstrators showed up for a candlelight vigil for Kevin Peterson on Friday. Attendees gathered outside of the bank near Vancouver where Peterson was killed by police. Details of the fatal shooting are unclear, although there are differences in the official account released by the Clark County Sheriff's Department and outside investigators. The Sheriff's Department says that Peterson fired a weapon at officers. Investigators say instead that Peterson showed a weapon to officers and that he was shot a short time later by three Clark County deputies. Peterson's parents say that they have not been given enough information about the shooting, and they were made to wait nearly 12 hours before they were allowed to identify their son. According to his stepmother, quote, we're just standing out here and you won't even let his dad walk back there to make sure, and they're like, no, it's a crime scene. Around the edges of the vigil, a small group of counter demonstrators gathered, carrying Trump flags, thin blue line flags, and American flags. Lifted trucks drove past the vigil occasionally shouting obscenities at the gathering. Chandler Pappas, member of the right-wing group Patriot Prayer, was seen marching near the vigil with a rifle that he loaded in front of vigil attendees. The vigil lasted for about two hours, eventually breaking off into a march around downtown Vancouver. Some windows in law enforcement buildings were broken by protesters. Before midnight, protesters reached a business protected by armed right-wing counter-protesters, The crowd and the armed men got into a verbal confrontation, resulting in bear mace being sprayed at the crowd. Two of the armed men tried to leave in an SUV, but protesters surrounded the vehicle. More bear mace was sprayed at the crowd by the right-wing counter-protesters. Crowds chased the vehicle down, but at 12.25 a.m., a a right-wing counter-protester fired two shots from a gun. It's unclear if the shots were fired at the crowd or in the air. Though there was a large police presence in the area, no pursuit attempt was made, nor were there any arrests. And your daily dose of data. Sunday saw 524 new cases of COVID in Oregon, according to the Oregon Health Authority. The state's total case number is now at 45,429. There were two more deaths on Sunday, and the reported death toll has reached 691. Meanwhile, state health officials are warning that if Oregon continues current trends, hospitals might reach capacity by mid-December. Only 24% of the state's 721 intensive care beds are available as of last Thursday. Only 14% of non-ICU adult beds are available. Last Thursday, there were 156 confirmed COVID-19 patients in hospitals. Experts are concerned that if the current upward trends continue, Hospitals will have to use alternative methods for bed management. These methods include postponing elective procedures, using empty hospital wings, or adding staffing capacity. Oregon hospitals have taken a regional approach, assessing capacity at a regional level and redistributing patients when necessary or possible. This could potentially mean transferring patients out of state which the OHA says was a standard practice even before the pandemic. A logging company has filed a legal challenge against Oregon's new fund to aid Black residents. Great Northern Resources is issuing the first challenge to the state's $62 million fund to help Black Oregonians and Black-owned businesses. They say that the harm done by the pandemic to their inventory and business should qualify them for aid. They're challenging the constitutionality of a fund that excludes them because they are not Black-owned. The complaint was filed last Thursday in U.S. District Court in Portland. The lawsuit is being funded by an organization led by Edward Bloom, a conservative legal strategist who has challenged the Voting Rights Act and racial considerations in college admissions. The Oregon Department of Administrative Services is named as the defendant in the complaint. Business records show that the president of Great Northern Resources, is tad Haupt. Helped was involved in the occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in 2016. The Oregon Cares Fund responded to the complaint by stating, quote, "The Oregon Cares Fund would ensure that the distribution of Cares funds does not perpetuate discriminatory racial disparities." As of October 26, the fund has approved over $21 million in payments and has actually paid out $7 million. While some say the payments might be unconstitutional, others say that because Black Oregonians have long been subjected to discrimination, the funds ensure that money does not perpetuate discrimination-related racial disparities. As of Sunday, over two-thirds of voters have cast their ballots in Multnomah County. 15,000 people voted on Sunday, bringing the total number of ballots submitted to 385,689. That's 67.57% of voters in the county. For comparison, 92 million have cast their ballots nationwide. That's 66.8% of all registered voters in the country. In the 2016 general election, two days before the election, only 48% of voters in Multnomah County had cast their ballots. Washington is also seeing record-high early voting, with 65% of voters casting their ballots early. Washington's ballot includes races for governor, lieutenant governor, and all 10 U.S. House seats. Washington's 10th to congressional district features two Democratic candidates who would both make firsts for Washington. Former Tacoma Mayor Marilyn Strickland would be the first black member of Washington's congressional delegation and the first Korean American ever elected to U.S. Congress. State Representative Beth Dolio would be the first LGBTQ member of Washington's delegation. Also featured on the Washington ballot, the first-time U.S. voters will make a decision on sex education. Voters will make a choice on a referendum on a measure that was passed earlier this year requiring public schools to provide comprehensive sex ed for all students. Multnomah County may be facing a shortage of wintertime homeless shelters. Coronavirus precautions mean that the county cannot provide the same number of beds it normally has in the winter. County leaders are looking to the public for ideas about large indoor spaces that could be used for severe weather shelter. According to the Joint Office of Homeless Services, the normal shelter capacity of 1,400 has been maintained through more open shelter spaces and motels. They also say that 275 new beds will be opening in the winter. These beds will be open 24 hours a day. The county is hoping to secure an additional 300 beds before the winter sets in. They are hoping for three to five large spaces, at least 5,000 square feet, in the city center, mid-county, and in Grusham. Community members who have suggestions for places that fit the criteria for a safe, ADA-accessible shelter are being asked to contact the Joint Office of Homeless Services. And finally, good news. There's still one day to vote. If you haven't submitted your ballot yet, the deadline has passed to mail it in. You can find your nearest drop box at the Secretary of State website at sos.oregon.gov backslash voting, backslash documents, drop slash box html. Most Multnomah County libraries, but not all, are also accepting ballots. Here are the libraries that take them. St. John's, North Portland, Kenton, Albina, Hollywood, Gregory Heights, Northwest, Rockwood, Belmont, Selwood-Moreland, Woodstock, Holgate, Midland, Capitol Hill, Hillsdale, Fairview, Gresham, and Troutdale. Again, you can find all drop boxes at the Secretary of State's website at sos.oregon.gov backslash voting. Ballots can be turned in 24 hours a day at these drop boxes. Make sure that your ballot is valid, signed, and sealed. And that's today's Quick Six Local Rundown. X Ray. Up next is an interview with Congressman Peter DeFazio. Jefferson Smith and the congressman speak about the 2020 general election, Donald Trump, and Oregon's national influence.
0: On the air right now, longtime congressman from Oregon, Peter DeFazio. Representative, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Hey, Jefferson, thanks. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to folks in Portland. It's an unusual election. Uh, Portland TV only covers 20% of my district, uh, Lynn County, a red county, uh, a tiny bit of, of Benton. Uh, but where I've been on Portland TV, because uh, they're spending $6 million against me, and they've been up on Portland TV, so we had to go up to the most expensive House race in the history of the state of Oregon.
0: How expensive is it up to now? Last time I saw it, last last numbers I saw it was somewhere three or four million maybe each side?
2: I think we're talking, uh, if you consider outside expenditures, et cetera, uh, he's got some super PACs, NRA and others, uh, putting in money on his side, right to life, uh, and that that's going to be well over $10 million.
0: Holy mackerel! And I have to say, I've seen the ads here in Portland. My wife, my wife and I commented, "Wow, don't usually see ads from your congressional district." I remember when I was at University of Oregon seeing Peter DeFazio ads, but it's been less frequent now. Were you surprised? Have you been surprised by this particular campaign, this particular candidate?
2: No, they they chose him um, uh, very early on. They targeted me since January of nineteen. They cleared the field for him. Um, they got my perpetual uh, crazy opponent, Art Robinson, out of the race. Uh, Scarlattas met with him, asked him to get out. Art refused. And then the Republicans said, well, we'll buy you a state Senate seat in Josephine County. And they did. So uh, woe tied our state Senate. Art Robinson is the new state senator representing Josephine County. Uh, and then there was an even crazier batch, a crazy woman in there, Joe Ray Perkins. Uh, she And they were worried about her even. Uh, so they gave her money to run against Merkley. They cleared the field for this guy. Uh, he has a profile. They've been doing this around the country, uh, You know, military uh, profile, absolutely no public service, actually no employment record except for uh, one job at Costco and Dancing with the Stars, and he lists himself as an actor-investor. Um, and they've tried to keep him off of legitimate media and only on right-wing stuff. Uh, and then but then they run ads on the legitimate media uh, contradicting what he says on right wing media. So it, it's been uh, it's, it's a new pattern. I was interviewed by a Washington Post reporter about this. He was trying to put together a story on it.
0: So what you're saying, the dynamic is when anybody's going to ask him a question, anybody where there's going to be have some back and forth accountability sort of dialogue, He limits that to a Breitbart or or a Fox News brand of media, but then uses that. Go ahead.
2: They put him on Fox a lot. Yeah. No, he's refused. uh, For instance, he came out against uh, any additional uh, covid relief. Uh, He's teamed up with Ted Cruz, who's blocking it in the Senate. Ted Cruz has given him one hundred thousand bucks. So uh, he has said there should be no additional covid relief. Uh, and, uh, that's on tape from the Eugene, uh, rotary. And then they tried, he tried to back off on that. Uh, he, he said, uh, there should be no minimum wage. And then he tried to say, well, I just meant there shouldn't be a federal minimum wage. I, I didn't mean Oregon. I, I love Oregon's minimum wage, except he said, no, no, the government should not set a minimum wage. It should be up to business and industry, uh, and on and on and on repeal the affordable care act, uh, you know, repeal Roe v. Wade. But, um, uh, He won't uh, repeat any of that on legitimate media. Uh, We're having to put it in ads.
0: And then he stays on right-wing media, but he uses that to raise money to communicate with everybody else. But that communication is, of course, decidedly one way.
2: Well, the Trumps have brought in most of the money. They love him. Uh, Every time he asks for money, uh, Donald uh, Trump, uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump retweet to their 92 million followers and say, send this American hero money, and the checks pour in, uh, tens of thousands of checks, actually. And so you can say, oh, I just get small contributions. Yeah, all solicited by Donald Trump.
0: What are the other dynamics? As you're looking at your race, what are some of the most important dynamics people should be aware of, in addition to the one we've just been talking about?
2: Well, I mean, a lot of people in Portland, even people in South Eugene, don't Uh, have a clue about about this district uh hillary won it by 552 votes um and uh you know it it is i have seven counties and uh four are deep red one is red and two are uh uh, blue in the urban areas and then uh, purple in the non-urban areas so it's a it's a tough district uh you know, I don't tell people uh, anything different on any media. I And I've gotten a long way by being honest with folks and saying, no, this is this is what I'm uh, going to do. They're attacking me mostly on uh, co-sponsoring the Green New Deal. Uh, they've run a lot of ads and they have a lot of postcards. I don't know how you make AOC look ugly, but uh, they got her looking really ugly next to a very ugly me on uh, super postcards, uh, et cetera. That's been their main line of attack uh, uh, has been uh, on my progressive credentials, uh, you know pre- co-founding the Progressive caucus and those sorts of things.
0: Southern boundary of your district I mean you get down to you get down to maybe Myrtle Creek, you get down to Rice Hill at least I know I've stopped for ice cream there. I think that's your district.
2: Oh yeah no, I got all Douglas County. I got most of Josephine County. I got Curry County at the border. so it's Curry, coos, uh, Douglas. Uh, Than uh, Lane, Lynn, uh, Benton. Oh, I left out Josephine. Yeah, and Josephine.
0: Your and, and a lot of your votes, of course, come from. You get votes, of course, throughout the district. A lot of your votes do come in uh, in in Lynn County, Benton County, and Lane County. And I think because you've been in Congress and had such a track record, and now you know you're in a have an important committee spot that I think there are people who said, oh, well, there's they can sort of take the race for granted. Has it been, have you had to sort of rattle some cages to let folks know, hey, listen, just because I've been able to win in this district doesn't mean you can take this district for granted. Does that take a little while for people to uh, wake up to?
2: Oh, yeah. We have something called the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Uh, actually, we polled uh, last December because I had a primary opponent. And, but we threw in a question at the end about this guy, and even though I had 55 percent job approval rating uh, at the beginning of the poll, after they read this guy's bio, we were tied. Yeah. Uh, so we went to the did further polling and uh, after the primary, and went to the Democrat campaign committee and said, you know, if, if you would go out and define this guy, he's going to try and uh, avoid uh, any issues uh, and uh, just run on being a hero, and that's what he's done and uh if you would just go out and define him with a little bit of money in august uh, because i i can't go out and rip his face off uh you know that wouldn't that wouldn't look right uh then this won't be a a real difficult race well they just kind of shrugged it off until about four weeks ago when they got a two-point poll and they said oh you weren't kidding it's like yeah right and then i had a message from one of the leaders in the house yesterday saying gee uh, i guess we really did always kind of take you and your district for granted
0: and now it's close. Your view, as I as I think about times when long time incumbents have not won, have you know, lost a race and surprised people, I started thinking about what the and I was talking about it with my with my dad, who I know you know, and mm-hmm. when uh, and I was thinking about the dynamics and we thought about Bob Duncan against Ron Wyden, uh, thought about Tom Foley uh, up in Washington, and we you know looked at some other examples. He talked about Wayne Morse. And some of the dynamics that occurred to me were, one, a district or, you know, it could be the whole state, but a district changing, right? Not changing a lot, you know, changing at the margins in an important way. Second is if there is a surprisingly strong candidate uh, you know, if there's a, a young Bob Packwood who ends up building a stronger grassroots base or a stronger funding base or a stronger endorsement base than imagine. And then third, and this was and this was dad's take on Wayne Morse uh, and I think also on Bob Duncan, a an incumbent who doesn't see the challenge coming. You mentioned AOC. That was another one we we referenced. You saw this challenge coming, but maybe some of the folks who, as you said, the D Triple C, I think as the kids call it, uh, mm-hmm. didn't see it coming as much. What do you think, at this moment, how do you sort of play it out? I know you're in the business, you know, you have four days to win this race, not to prognosticate, but how, we had this discussion just the other day. I wonder what you see are the most important dynamics when a race flips from a long-time incumbent to some upstart.
2: Well, um, in the case of Tom Foley, uh, I remember being in uh, uh, whip meetings with him, and he would start uh, carrying on about what the New York Times uh, said today. And I would just think, you know, Tom, there's nobody in your district reads the New York Times. Uh, you know, he became a creature uh, of Washington. Uh, you know, I, I served with him for a while until he, until he lost, so I, I knew him uh, better than most, uh, you know, Wayne lost over a uh, principal. Uh, he was one of two people to oppose the Vietnam War. That was pretty much it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I've always respected him for that. Uh, and uh, then there was Al Ullman from Oregon, who, again, really didn't live here anymore. He was the last Democrat to chair a major committee in the House. He lost sometime in the 1980s. Uh, Denny Smith, a uh, right-wing Republican, had a uh, photos uh, which showed Al Almond's house, which was a post office box. He didn't live in Oregon anymore. So they're trying to say that I live on a yacht in Washington and I've been there 50 years. Well, obviously I haven't been there 50 years. I live on a boat. It's the cheapest way to live. It's got 350 square feet of interior space, smaller than one of the bedrooms in Alec Scarlato's 4,400 square foot out-of-place, ugly brick mansion, uh, which he owns mortgage-free and lives in alone overlooking the Umpqua River. Uh, so I don't, I think he's a little more out of touch. He's the guy on the hill. I live in Springfield, uh, never moved my family to D.C., but they're trying to uh, pretend that I did. And, you know, people who don't know me, uh, after they've spent $6 million or $7 million bucks uh, running those ads, uh, they might believe it. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're fighting back against that. Uh, and, uh, you know, but I'm the same person I've always been, but that's, that's what I see with most people. Uh, they lose touch. They don't, uh, they don't live in home anymore. They, they become creatures of DC. And the last thing I want to be is a, is a swamp creature. And boy, it's sure swampier now with Trump, the most corrupt administration in the history of the United States. I mean, maybe, uh, there was something in the late 1800s. that was really bad, but they didn't have the powers that, that the government has today. So, the most corrupt and dangerous administration in the history of the United States.
0: Uh, I will tell you, I could, uh, I would love to talk to you about that at great length. I've got to at least ask. Of course, so much about the president has been in the news, and he has dominated so much of national tension over the last four plus years, even prior to being elected president. What, where is an area that you think people have missed, though, even in all of this attention? Where is an area that helps you understand this presidency in a way that maybe not everybody in your district or everybody around the country might understand?
2: Well, the problem is, uh, you know, he's just the uh, just the face and he just keeps distracting people while they are systematically dismantling government. He just promulgated a rule uh, saying that, you um, that they can, for political or other reasons, uh, they can fire any federal employee for anything uh, they deem inappropriate. And in this administration, that means crossing president Trump. Uh, and, uh, that's an extraordinary and that will go into effect just near the time when hopefully he's out of office. Uh, and I'm certain Joe Biden will reverse it the first day. Uh, but they have corrupted the agencies. I don't even know who's head of EPA or Interior anymore because they've had so many scandals with these corrupt people. But they bring in people who are efficient. They're former lobbyists for oil and gas. Uh, you know, they're dismantling uh, protections, uh, you know, for our public lands. Um, you know, they, uh, they have undone the Clean Water Act. I mean, seriously, the Clean Water Act, uh, they want to go back to the good old days when, uh, uh, rivers burned. <laughs> And the willamette was an open sewer um, it's just i mean they are efficient at um, you know delivering for the worst most rapacious uh, special interest yesterday he uh, delisted wolves uh, for the ranchers uh, so that they can go out and slaughter uh, the recovering wolf population i mean day after day you, you don't notice a lot of it because um, it's just because uh, all you're doing is paying attention to his antics and his like watch me over here i'm being crazy by the but his people are at the same time uh totally dismantling things that we all care about uh and they're going to have very long-term damage and then of course the major issue of climate change and what they're doing to uh uh you know getting us out of the paris peace accord was just the beginning i mean what they're doing day in day out to discourage renewables and push uh, fossil fuels i mean Uh, You know, he hasn't had much success in reviving uh, coal mining, um, but uh, but they're pushing for uh, drilling, uh, you know, offshore and in sensitive federal lands. Uh, There just should be no federal leases uh, for uh, oil and gas extraction. And hopefully that will come under the Biden administration.
0: Representative Peter DeFasio in the closest congressional race in our region. Thank you so much for being generous with your time and thanks for your service.
2: Okay, Jefferson, thank you. Uh, we'll get on uh, again some other time, hopefully in talk in the past tense about Donald
0: Trump and what his administration did. I look forward to that conversation, Congressman. <laughs> okay. Be well and good luck to you.
2: Okay, thanks. Bye.
1: Thanks to Congressman DeFazio for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. And thank you... Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow when it will be finally Election Day. Rest well.
2: X Ray.